Well, let's open up our Bible, shall we, to Exodus chapter 20. As Ashley said, my name is Liam, one of the pastors here, glad to carry on our series in Exodus and the little mini series in the Ten Commandments in between. As you're turning there, let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Lord, uh, you tell us in your words that your words last forever. They never change or fade. You never lie or deceive. For you, as Titus 1 tells us, are the God who cannot lie, which means we can trust you in all you say. And our prayer is that you'd help us to do that now as we consider this commandment in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Back in 2009, Ricky Gervais starred in a movie called The Invention of Lying. Don't watch it. It is shockingly bad. Terrible movie. Anyway, it's a romantic comedy about a world where everybody tells the truth except for one man, Mark Bellison, played by Ricky Gervais. Only he can lie. Now, it's a romantic comedy, right? So it's not really meant to be taken seriously or philosophically, but it gets two things completely wrong that if you If you've got any kind of Christian worldview, it just grates on you. It's kind of irritating, right? One thing it does is that it portrays an honest society as something absolutely brutal. For example, in one clip, this guy Mark is on a date and his date's mum phones to ask how it's going and what this date is like. And she says, oh, yeah, he seems nice, kind of funny, but not very attractive. Absolutely no chance of a kiss. He's kind of got a a nose like a frog, right? It's kind of how ridiculous it is. For some reason, the way they portray truth-telling in this movie is that everyone who tells the truth is also utterly obnoxious and lacks any sense of emotional intelligence. That is just ridiculous in most cases. Second reason why the second thing that this movie gets completely wrong is the fact that it ends up portraying lying as something that is essentially good, almost pro-social, not anti-social, pro-social. So this guy, Mark, uses this unique ability to lie to work everything, career, finance, relationships, to his own advantage with no regard for the impact of his deceit on those around him. Yet he ends up somehow being the hero of the story for making up all kinds of stuff, irrespective of whatever bank he's defrauded or whatever friend he's hoodwinked. And that too is ridiculous. The idea that an honest society is something brutal and that a liar is something good could not be further from the truth. And yet that's how many people in our city view lying. Uh, That's maybe how many, some of us view lying, if not all the time, certainly periodically when it's convenient. We say, oh, nobody really wants to tell the truth or even hear the truth all the time. That'd be cruel, that would be harsh. And as I've said, some psychologists and counselors are actually working this into their treatments. You know, pro-social lying is seen as a good thing. What do you think about that? 
Is an honest society really something brutal? And is lying, even if you think at times, really all right? More importantly, the question we've got to ask this morning is, what does God think about that? Well, we turn to Exodus chapter 20, and we take time to consider this, uh, the ninth commandment, which we can read together. In Exodus 20, we'll read verses 1 and 2, and then verse 16. Here's what God's Word says. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then to verse 16. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, let's consider two things this morning. One, truth-telling is a vital means of loving our neighbor. And two, truth-telling is cultivated in us by remembering our Savior. Dead simple. Number one, truth-telling is a vital means of loving our neighbor. Firstly, in the courtroom and then everywhere else. Now, this, the God's immediate concern in the proclamation of this ninth commandment, I'm sure you could pick it up from the wording, his primary concern is in regard to legal testimony. Before the days of CCTV, forensics, DNA, and Columbo, look him up, judges depended on eyewitness testimony to either convict or clear someone who was accused. And without any kind of regulation or legislation, it's pretty obvious to see that that system could be easily abused. I mean, let's say, if you didn't like Jimmy, and you bore a, gr a grudge against Jimmy, or if you wanted something that Jimmy had, or wanted Jimmy out the picture, you could just falsely accuse Jimmy of some crime and falsely testify against him, putting both his life and even possibly his, his livelihood and even possibly his life in jeopardy. It's called perjury, and it's a sin. Interestingly, the Sanhedrin used this very tactic to try and get rid of Jesus. You read in Matthew 26, 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Now, this threat is what's in view when God commands Israel to be a truth-telling nation. When he says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, that's a, that's a carefully worded commandment, isn't it? It's very carefully put. You'll notice that it does not say what often we think it says in the ninth commandment. It doesn't say, do not lie, okay? It says, you shall not give false testimony. In other words, you shall not give vain or worthless evidence. Now, that means that you can, if you like, you, you, you can you can break this law not just by lying, but by being misleading. By being, uh, for one of, to use one of those little phrases we use to belittle our lying, you know, to be economic with the truth. Let me give you an example of that. Let's say there's a man called Boris, and he has a, no, let's not use that party. <laughs> sorry, I scrubbed that bit out, I'm sorry. Uh, let's say Jenny and Johnny falsely accuse Jimmy of robbing the bank. Jimmy's getting a really hard time, you understand. Uh, Jenny says, Jimmy robbed the bank. Now, what is that? 
Well, that is a barefaced lie. It's factually inaccurate, and therefore it is a breach of the ninth commandment. But Johnny says, all I know is that Jimmy was coming out the bank at the time of the robbery. Now, what's that? Well, that's true, but it's misleading. Johnny knows Jimmy didn't rob the bank. Therefore, that too is a breach of the ninth commandment. And to prevent damage to reputation, livelihood, and to life, God, therefore, in the ninth commandment, legislates for his people to be truth-tellers. And he shows himself ready to condemn any witness that does not tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. When he says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, you're like, well, that's an awful lot to take from this one verse. But it's not really just from this one verse. Because as you read on in Exodus, as you look at Leviticus, as you look at Deuteronomy, and you've got these various elaborations of the commandments in different parts, you find that God reinforces these kind of requirements. And even in regard to truth-telling, in the courtroom, when he, he adds things like these three different lie deterrents in the law courts. For example, number one, one witness was never sufficient, Deuteronomy 19, 15, um, which meant that you not only had to be willing to ruin a neighbor with your lies, you had to convince someone else to do the same. You couldn't accept any accusation except on the basis of two witnesses. Secondly, you must be ready to administer the punishment yourself. That's Deuteronomy 17. And especially in the case of capital punishment, the accuser was the one who was required to cast the first stone, which meant that you not only had to be willing to bear false testimony against someone, you had to be willing to actually carry out the execution. That was deterrent number two. And thirdly, you are liable for their punishment. So if the accusation that you made against your neighbor proved to be false, you, the accuser, received their sentence. That's Deuteronomy 19, 18 and 19. So by lying, you run the risk of dying. Now those reinforce what God says through this immediate concern expressed in the ninth commandment for God's people to be truth-tellers in court when life is on the line, when livelihood is on the line, when reputation is on the line, so as to not ruin a brother or sister, but instead to protect them. And God's underlying concern in the preservation of this loving community, uh, sorry, God's underlying concern through this commandment is the preservation of a loving community that bears his name. And we can see that even from the Lord's use of the word neighbor in this commandment. Neighbor in this context refers to people, all of those who belong to Israel, God's Old Testament people. And with that one word, God reminds them that they are a, a people. And truth-telling is a means by which they not only love their neighbor and preserve their life, but love the Lord, their God, and preserve his reputation, a reputation that he has very blatantly told them that he has staked on them. So you are most like God, Israel, he says, when you love your neighbor 
and by telling the truth, demonstrate that you do. And you want the best for them. Conversely, you are most like Satan, the father of lies, when you try to pull the wool over someone's eyes or worse, devastate someone else's life by your deceit. It's that bad. And ultimately what happens if lies are permitted and lives are allowed, or if lives are seen as pro-social rather than antisocial, any society built on lies, any community where truth has no currency is fundamentally hellish. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, primarily it applies to us if we're in a courtroom. If we're ever called to give testimony on matters of legal significance. Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But certainly, even within the context of the local church, in this new covenant family of baptized believers in which matters of discipline are raised and the church family is essentially the courtroom, we are called to tell the truth in matters that matter. So as individual members, we don't make false accusations that could ruin someone's reputation or worse their livelihoods. As a church, we are to obey the instructions given by the Lord in Matthew 18, 15 to 18, in the case of a, a member, and uh, 1 Timothy 5, 19, in the case of an elder, that accusations are made on the basis of, well, more than one, two people giving testimony, two people trying to convince someone of their error and to encourage repentance. Indeed, we are to do everything for the sake of the body and truly out of loving concern for the body and out of reverence for Christ. So uh, let us love one another by being truth-tellers in rooms where justice matters. But the ninth commandment, of course, has a wider application For truth-telling is a vital means of loving your neighbor, not just in the courtroom, but everywhere else. Now, remember how the Ten Commandments often work. We've seen this already. Paul has done a masterful job of leading us through these over the last few weeks. Often in the Ten Commandments, what God forbids in each case is often the most extreme of a particular sin. Murder, for example, is the worst kind of hatred. And both are uh, prohibited in God's word. But here, lying against your neighbor in a courtroom and condemning potentially an innocent person to death for a crime they didn't commit is the worst kind of lying. But that's not the only form of lying, of course, that is condemned in Scripture. God prohibits all kinds, all forms of deceit in the name of neighborly love. He condemns little white lies. Again, the kind that we tend to play down using more playful words like, oh, it's a wee fib or a porky or something like that. Like, you know, we do this all the time. Like when your wife asks you, what are you looking at on your phone? And you say, nothing. When that's clearly not true. It is a lie sometimes. Now, when you want, like, you may... (laughs) You may not want to admit that you're watching a video of goats falling over because it's embarrassing, but surely preserving trust in that relationship 
is of greater worth than just saving your lying face. You know, watch out for those little white lies, though. I think those are the ones we pay too little attention to. But Jesus doesn't allow us to do that when he says, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty or careless word they have spoken. It's a big deal what comes out of our mouths because it impacts on those around us. But it's not just the little white lies, of course, that Scripture um, speaks against, but ones that deliver far greater related, relational damage. You know, the intentional lies, the, the manipulative deceit, the pulling the wool over the eyes of people that you trust, uh, that, who actually trust you. Those are the kind of lies that are significant. And sometimes we lie in ways like that in, in pursuit of selfish gain. You'll just do anything you can even at great cost to the truth or relationships to get that job that you want or get, that, get into that circle of friends or whatever. But sometimes, perhaps most often, we do this in order to try and get ourselves out of trouble. Where were you last night? A worried parent asks, and the teenager's deceitful response covers over a world of problems. Now, we think we're Pinocchio's successfully achieving some kind of cover-up, but often our neighbors see right through our spin, and more importantly, the Lord does. And in fact, he shows us that we're not Pinocchios. We're more like Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit, and who by their deceit threatened the testimony of that church and the work of the gospel, and God will not have that. And what more could be said of other sins of uh, of deceit, like slander, where, where lies like arrows target someone, where you fabricate an accusation and pretend it to be true just to take somebody down. Or exaggeration, when you ran 4K, but say you ran 5, we've all done that, maybe not ran 5, we embellish the fact in order to make us look good, or worse, we make out that we are doing better than we are, even in our faith, when someone asks us, or even flattery. Flattery is manipulation masked as praise. But Proverbs 26 reminds us a flattering mouth doesn't work good. It works ruin. And these are just some of the ways that we break the ninth commandment. But there should not be even a hint of such deceit in the local church. Among God's holy people set apart for him. In John 8, we read that God has enabled us to know the truth and that this truth sets us free, free from our slavery to sin, and that by the spirit of truth that he has so kindly given as a gift to live within us, he reveals crystal clear instruction for his people regarding what we are to choose when we speak. As Colossians 3 says, do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of its creator. In other words, lying undermines your claim to have been converted. You may have been, but it doesn't look like it. In those moments when our tongues are practicing deceit. Ephesians 4 Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood 
and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So truth-telling is one of the definitive marks of our true and genuine unity in Christ and indeed a signifying mark of our membership of his body. His truth unites and our truth speaking to one another is a means of expressing that unity and indeed a way of encouraging us to build one another up. It matters. Therefore, we should not lie. We should put off falsehood and see truth-telling as a vital means of loving our neighbors. Now, I guess to those who believe in God already and who've trusted in Christ for salvation, this sounds like, yeah, we agree with this. We find it hard. It's a good thing to strive towards, but we know our weaknesses. We know how easy it is to fall into all kinds of deceit and to lie in such Ordinary, everyday, almost too easy ways that kind of make your heart sink a little bit. Well, where do we look for help in this? And what are the means by which we can motivate ourselves to be those who, uh, empowered by grace, obey the ninth commandment and resolve to love our neighbor dearly by being truth-tellers? Well, you see in various ways that the Bible tries to encourage us us to do this. We're encouraged sometimes towards obedient behavior by thinking about the punishment, okay? That's a good thing. That's the reason why we have warning passages in God's word, okay? It's to warn you, don't get too close to behaving in this kind of way. That's not gonna work out well for you. You know, these are the kind of instructions that we give to kids when we're trying to bring them up and help them learn what good obedience looks like and so on. And it's the same in regards to other, the other approach the Scripture offers, offers, not just the warnings of the punishment, but certainly the encouragements towards the rewards. You know, there are good reasons to want to do this, to be a truth teller. Look at what it produces. But ultimately, truth telling is best cultivated by remembering regularly our great salvation. Truth telling is cultivated best by remembering our Savior. This is actually what God encourages the Israelites to at Sinai uh, to recall. And this is point two, by the way, if you're taking notes. Uh, He based every single one of these 10 words on his identity and on his salvation. Paul's highlighted this for us in weeks before. Verse two says, uh, we find God saying, this is God preaching from the top of a blazing Sinai. What a sight it must have been. And he declares, I am the Lord your God. That's his identity. He's gloriously revealed that identity throughout uh, whatever scripture has come before in Genesis and up to this point in Exodus. But Exodus 3, he gives his name. He's the great I am, self-existing, self-sustaining, almighty, enabling, powerful. And he reminds them of this. I am on your side. I am this God, the Lord, and I am your God. You are mine, and I am yours. I am the Lord your God. It's important to remember that as Christians. But verse 2 continues with what he has done. We've got his identity, but remember also his activity. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, that is God's salvation in summary form. 
I have redeemed you. I've rescued you from death. And I've brought you into this new life where you will know me. And I will be with you. You will be mine. And I will be yours. So you see what God is doing here. He's reminding God's people back then that their ability to be truth-tellers who love one another, that that truth-telling would be enhanced by remembering their salvation. And the same is exactly true for Christians like us. Turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Let me show you Christ before Pilate and how this reveals to us the Savior we should consider when tempted to lie. Christ here is the Savior that we need and the example that we follow. John chapter 18. Now, when you look down with me at verse 28, okay, remember, this is the day of Christ's crucifixion. Uh, the backstory is that hours just hours before this, Jesus stood before the court of the Sanhedrin, and guess what? Many false witnesses came forward. Many misleading witnesses came forward. Oh, they said that he was going to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, he did say that, but he didn't mean it in the way that he was being misrepresented in that court. So they are in breach of the ninth commandment. So given this false testimony, given this determined conviction to be hateful toward their neighbor, Jesus Christ, they led him all the way to Pontius Pilate's court. And here he is before the Roman governor. Verse 33, Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now here's what's happening in this moment. Jesus has the opportunity in a courtroom, in Pilate's courtroom, to either testify truthfully or falsely. If he tells the truth, he's dead. If he lies or even gives a factually inaccurate statement to kind of save his own skin, if you like, he does live. But when you take into account the fact that he's already explained that the, that the reason why he's come is to save sinners and to die for sins, then there is an awful lot more that hangs on his response to Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? So verse 33, uh, verse 36, sorry, sorry, if he lies, okay, he saves himself, but we're dead. And by his deceit, we would be the devastated neighbor. But if he tells the truth, he does so at great cost to himself, but does his neighbor, us, the ultimate loving kindness. See that? That's the tension that's all wrapped up in this pause between Pilate's question and Christ's response. How does he respond? Verse 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. 
everyone on the side of truth listens to me. The truth he told in Pilate's courtroom took him to the cross where he took the punishment for every lie we've ever told or ever will if we have looked to him for forgiveness. And he bore it away. And only when that penalty was paid and prior to that moment when he gave up his spirit and died, he cried out, it is finished. And he meant it. And three days later, he rose again and ascended into glory to the right hand of the Father. And all throughout the rest of the New Testament, in Hebrews and in Revelation in particular, we read that his testimony is true and that the Father and the Spirit bear a faithful witness that our sins have been forgiven. He is not lying, friends. He's a truth teller. And Revelation 1 calls him the faithful witness ongoingly testifying truly in all things through his word, through his blood, and even through us, his church. That's Christ before Pilate. Now, what does it mean for us? Well, that depends. It depends on whether you believe in Jesus or not. It depends on whether you've looked to him for the forgiveness of your sins or not. If you have not yet trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sins, then ultimately none of that applies to you. You are living a lie in defiance of his authority and in rebellion against both his existence and his instruction. And Revelation 21.8 says very clearly that the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So the encouragement for you, on account of the fact of what I've just read, that Jesus went to the cross so that people like us could have our sins forgiven, and live in an entirely new way, being truth-tellers. My encouragement for you is to do what he says. Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Confess your sin. Ask him for forgiveness. He's already promised that he'll give it. And he does not renege on his word. He doesn't utter a word of a lie ever. So you can trust him. Believe in him. But if you do already believe, know this. Your standing before Christ the judge is sure. And this is what enables and empowers our obedience to the ninth and all the other commandments and the instructions of God's word. Motivated by grace. Empowered by his spirit. Delighted. Absolutely thrilled to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness like telling the truth. I know it's hard. I find it hard. But what makes it easier is remembering this salvation and letting it fill your heart with love for him. We can follow his example, as Ephesians 5.1 reminded us, and live a life of love. 
That's what helps you stand up under temptation to lie. Pray this prayer all the time. Help me to love you, Lord. Help me to love my neighbor. Truth-telling is entirely wrapped up in that simple prayer. You'll not hate your neighbor by lying to them if you're trying harder by God's grace to love them. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength for his great salvation. Cultivate truth-telling day by day by remembering your Savior, what he did in that moment before Pilate, and how we can follow his example. And be the kind of truth-tellers that demonstrate that it's a good thing to tell the truth, not a bad thing. And that truth-telling does not make for a society that is brute, brutish, and horrible, but the very, very heavenly kind of place you want to live. Amen? Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Please do take a few seconds just to pray prayers of confession. Ask God for power and help to remember these things and turn them into action. Our God of truth and grace, we praise you for showing us how you would have us live, to live in a way that reflects uh, your, the trueness of your character. Help us to be truth tellers that love our neighbors dearly and help us to cultivate this, to be sanctified in our truth telling and truth living by remembering our Savior day by day. Now, we love you, Lord. We are grateful for the kindness of your grace and your forgiveness shown us in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. How I love the voice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. He declares his work is finished. He has spoken this hope to me, and it's true. Let's stand and sing.